So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. We've all seen it before. A new app or tool arrives on the scene that we're eager to use, and we want to dive in and use it with our classes right away. The problem is, how do you make sure that it's more than just new shiny thing for the kids to play with? How do you make sure that it adds value or helps them to express themselves more effectively? As Greg likes to say, if you're making a video, you wouldn't call it an iMovie project. There has to be a bigger reason. When you were a kid, did you have an assignment, use scissors, and call it a scissors project? Probably not. So finding the why behind what you're doing and choosing tools that support that task and help students express their learning is a key to being effective in the classroom today. Today's guest is a master of identifying that why and always finding a way to put tasks before apps. Sure. Well, so excited to be with you both today. Um, my name is Monica Burns. I am an ed tech and curriculum consultant and former New York City public school teachers. So I taught in a classroom that went from chalkboards and overhead projectors to a one-to-one iPad classroom, became an Apple Distinguished Educator, started blogging and writing about education technology. And I've been out of the classroom for a few years, uh, continuing that writing and blogging work but spending a lot of time in other people's classrooms, hosting professional development, and traveling around to different places for regional and national events. Kind of cool. I know I see you on uh, social media uh, a little bit all over the place. It's kind of surprising mm-hmm. how many miles you can rack up going and working with other schools, right? Oh, um, absolutely. So why don't you go ahead and tell us, what have you been thinking about in education? So I've been thinking a lot about creation in the classroom and what it looks like to provide meaningful experiences for students with the power of digital tools to help them make something. Having an opportunity for uh, students to create a product using digital tools to show off what they've learned. So give us, give us an example of like where, where can technology take creation or what are the benefits of doing that? So one thing that I'm excited about is the way that students can have a variety of opportunities to show what they know. So it might be through voice, it might be through images, it might be through symbols and icons, it might be a way to use music to help connect to a particular topic or theme. But just the opportunities for choice on a student side of things to show up what they've learned through a few different mediums is one way that I think technology really kind of helps those creation moments shine. It also gives students a way to make a product that might be connected to a link or a file, making it really easy to share with a larger audience as well. I completely agree. Um, with your sentiment, Monica, and I think it's um, there's tremendous potential that can be unlocked when kids have, you know, uh, in some ways like unlimited outlets. It can be a bit um, stifling sometimes when there's so many options, and it, it can be hard to kind of pick the path that's going to be most beneficial to the message that they're conveying and the student and what where their skill set is. One thing that I get worried about, though, and I wonder if you've thought about this or have any perspective on it, is like. almost like the power of language and how it's being used by the teacher and maybe how it's being adopted by the students when they talk about the use of technology. So um, language around um, we're doing like an iMovie project or we're doing Mm -hmm. a fill in the blank for the the tool that's being used. So I've always been concerned about it. I remember um, years ago, I want to say it was, I can't, I can't, I'm I'm not going to be able to pinpoint who, 
who um, shared it first, but this idea of like really focusing on verbs as opposed to focusing on nouns. If you could speak to that a little bit, tell us maybe your experience around that idea or, or just what you think about it. It's definitely something that I really try to bring to the table when talking to teachers about the why of what we're doing, right? What is it here that we're really looking to accomplish? Because that app, that website can help us make it happen. It's really not about plugging the tool in just because. And I wrote a book last year uh, called Tasks Before Apps, uh, published by ASCD, which is really about this idea of saying, right, what is our learning goal? Right, what's our big objective here um, that we're trying to address? Right, what is it that we really want students to do in this moment to explore and then apply what they've learned right, by creating something? And then what is that tool that's going to really help them get there? Maybe we're focused on something that connects to their voice, something that's focused on remote collaboration right, and helping Right. Everyone think about that kind of why from the beginning. One thing that I find, you know, when I'm going to different places and sharing is that I'm often asked and I'll, you know, very much offer to do this as well, right? To do a kind of a listicle presentation, right? The 15 tools that could help you with this or the 20 things that you can do um, in this particular setting with this particular set of tools. And I always try to frame that when I'm talking to teachers about that tasks before apps mentality, right? Here's a whole bunch of resources for your tool belt. You don't want your tool belt to be so heavy with, you know, apps and websites and all those things that you don't know what to pick or that that tool belt's so heavy it's on the floor so you can't reach it anyway. It's really about knowing what is out there to help you accomplish you know, those core goals that come back to that task. You know, that being said, right, it's nice to know what's out there, right? to have a feel for how things work, to be confident enough to share that with a group of students, to understand the nuances of a handful of different tools to really help make that happen. But it always is going to come back to the, right, the why, right? What is it that we want them to do and understand, but why are we going to use that particular tool to help them right, accomplish that particular goal? A lot of it has to do with like the intention, like intentional about the specific thing that you're trying to do and not so much uh, talk to it. So maybe could you tell us about some success stories or some positive examples that have come from something like that? And maybe if it goes together, where are some places where teachers will get off the path and, and veer and get distracted? So when we're being intentional, right, when we're strategically choosing different tools and having conversations around what that can look like, I'm often working with teachers in classrooms or talking to teachers about open-ended creation tools. Right? It's not to say that there isn't a place for adaptive technology or that there is, you know, where kids can answer a whole bunch of questions and they go on a pathway to, to practice and explore. Right? But open-ended creation tools, whether it's something like the Spark tools, like Seesaw, uh, like Book Creator, right? those give students more space and room to show what they know and teachers more agency to design what type of learning experiences right, might go on when kids are within that kind of choose-your-own-adventure, open-ended space. So that's something that I not only advise and suggest in conversations, but even this year, I've had the chance to spend time, you know, side by side with students, right, as they jump into these tools that give them more space, right, and that connect back to that kind of intention that a teacher has set for checking for understanding, for giving kids a space to explore. And so those type of tools and those type of learning experiences that provide students a space to be more creative, 
yet also allow teachers the agency to direct what that learning um, can look like, you know, while they're supporting that student journey is definitely something that I've seen, you know, successful, whether it's kids recording or snapping a picture and then talking about their learning with something like Seesaw um, or making a product that is interactive, that can be shared really easily with a different type of open-ended creation tool. There's a lot that can happen there. One of the distractions, right, that sometimes come up is when something, you know, comes onto the scene that is really bright and flashy, grabs our attention, grabs students' attention because we've never seen something quite like it before yet right we need to be thoughtful to say okay where does this fit in right is this just that kind of gimmicky i got your attention how long is it going to last right sort of tool or is it something that really is going to promote discussion get us curious about a new topic really thinking about something in a completely new way as opposed to just being flashy so I try to remind educators whether, you know, I'm doing side-by-side coaching or speaking to a larger group, right? This idea that we need to have that gut check, right? That what is the goal here that we're really looking to, to address, right? How can we be strategic by using the different types of features within a digital tool at our fingertips we didn't have access to in the past? And when do we want to make sure that we just say, that's nice, I'll put it in my back pocket, and maybe that'll be something that's useful um, at a later time. It sounds a little bit like you're talking about, you know, you'll find the tools that are going to open up expression, that are going to convey something that maybe couldn't have been conveyed in some other method and, and kind of extend the sharing that a kid can do. Yes. And so for, you know, when it comes to that extension or that layering on of an experience a child, you know, just couldn't have in the past, you know, I think back to my own classroom, right? So when I'm working with students, um, you know, as a classroom teacher, you know, one of the most eye-opening moments for me when it came to, wow, this is going to be something that we can really explore um, in lots of different ways was using screencasting tools um, with students who conversationally, right, could tell me all about the differences between different types of trying but if I had given them a pencil or a keyboard, right, to write and explain their thinking um, in sentences or in a paragraph, that would have been a really big roadblock. And it's not to say that that's not important or a place that we were going to at some point to have that paragraph to explain their thinking in the math classroom. But in order to get there, to build confidence, and for me in the moment to you know feel confident that that child had the vocabulary and understood what we were doing, you know, a screencast of them drawing triangles, labeling them, talking about it as they did it, you know, accomplished the core goals right in that moment that could then help us move forward to something else right on the, the list of, of expectations or, or things that I wanted to address with that group of students over the course of the year. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Monica. I remember seeing, um, and we have a screencast of a, a younger student who's talking about the sides of a triangle in, in a screencast and watching the student work through determining the, the longest side and seeing their error along the way and then catching their error. And that, that's something you just simply couldn't see on paper, you would see it as an incorrect response, and that's how you would address that um, that student's work. There's yeah. one. The, there's a, another point that I want to come back to, and I love the idea of like giving students space to create, and that's super powerful. However, right, and I'm not trying to be overly cynical because I believe mm-hmm. in this stuff the same way that you and Sean do. Um, I often think about, and I try to express this when I work with teachers as well as. When you give the student the opportunity to use a particular tool and then they're creating within a certain medium, there's 
um, skill sets and guidelines and things to keep in mind when you select a specific medium. So if a student, you know, either is given the option or chooses to use audio, it's almost a double-edged sword, right? Because there's space within the realm of audio. When you pick that medium, it's super powerful. But if you haven't explored and investigated and been thoughtful about the use of audio, then it could be like detrimental to the student's work. So a really good example of this, this was years ago, um, and I've never met Andy face-to-face, but Andy Arcan, um, he had his kids create one episode podcast in the style of Serial about Macbeth. And it was just phenomenal work. And in the blog post he wrote about it, he had them study and examine the characteristics of high-quality podcasts before they even began to construct their own podcasts. And I feel like that step is often missed. Like you talked about, like, here's a tool. It lets us do X. So therefore, we should just do it without really being thoughtful about what it means when you actually operate within that domain. Mm-hmm. And what you said about the exemplars, right, is often that missing piece that I see or the kind of aha moment when having a, a conversation, right, with someone to say, right, how are we going to communicate these expectations? And how are we even going to understand, right, what's going to happen to students along the way, right, unless we take on that creation mode ourselves, right, to create an exemplar, or we find something and they can have that conversation with students about the choices that, you know, someone made when making something. So, you know, so much of what you said there, you know, resonates in conversations I have with teachers from a planning perspective to say, right, if we are going to say, right, do a podcast or do a movie, right, what kind of things are going to happen there that's going to allow us to give students the space to show what they know, but then also kind of address things in a way that we wouldn't have done if we were on paper and pencil, right? So maybe students are making a book trailer and they now need to choose the color scheme, the music in the background, the way their voice sounds as they read aloud the script that they said. And part of it is saying, we need to help you know, students understand that process, right? The decisions, how that connects to audience, all these other layers of things before, but then also acknowledging, right? If we're not gonna do that, right? If we're not gonna have conversation about that, right? can we truly hold students accountable for that part of, of what they've done, right? So if the music, you know, that goes along with their book trailer has nothing to do with the theme of the book that they've read, it's lighthearted when the book that they've read is, is very dark and serious. And we haven't, you know, shown exemplars. We haven't right, had conversations with students about how the music can really connect to, um, the tone of the book, right, then we're in no place, right, to hold someone accountable, right? There should not be a line on a rubric or a checklist, uh, but it provides an opportunity to say, if those are going to be things that are important to us, how can we introduce them, you know, strategically? And that book trailer type of example, you know, that I often share when talking to teachers I often give the, you know, the example, I say, you know, go off and look at this later. I'm not going to show it to you right now, but a great, you know, non-exemplar is a, you know, set of book trailers or movie trailers, excuse me, that are alternate movie trailers that you can find on YouTube. And now Mary Poppins is, is much more relevant than it has been in the past few years. But one of my favorites on YouTube that you can find is created as a kind of spin on a horror movie. So if you watch Mary Poppins trailer with much different music, you're going to have a very different feeling and association with the story that's presented. So when you talk about, right, 
presenting these different types of mediums to students, you know, I completely agree that being thoughtful on the kind of nuances that that medium presents is so important because it also provides an opportunity to have some high quality conversations with students about the things that we already care about, whether it's theme or symbolism within a book um, or whether it's communicating ideas persuasively right in the different content area. You know, basically what we're talking about is um, setting a standard or understanding um, like what makes something quality. And, and in a way, what Greg is talking about where you study what makes a high quality podcast is just the students creating a rubric, right? And I think there's a place for rubrics, but sometimes I get frustrated by them because it's like, here's all the stuff that's important and you're not putting the students in the context uh, in the process of defining what is important. What do you see that matters, right? And mm-hmm. um, it, it means that they don't have to dissect the art that they're making, you know? And so mm-hmm. as you were talking, I... You know, in the early days of iPads, I think I got into the habit of like, we're going to try this thing out. And I didn't talk about what makes something good, what makes something quality. But we could do that by having the students create something small and then going back and digesting it and evaluating it together, which I think is a valid way of doing that. We created it. Now, what makes it good? What makes it what needs help? Um, and, And just kind of pull apart where we've had successes and where we've had failures in it. But it's um, a practical understanding that they're gaining from doing it. Um, and not just, like I said, a rubric. And, and, and I don't want to be cracking bad on rubrics because I think mm-hmm. there is a place for them. But I think that what they're trying to do can be done in other ways, like Greg is saying, that is meaningful, you know? Um, yeah, and, and just giving kids the opportunity to take on that evaluation role, right? Whether it's looking at exemplars, non-exemplars, looking at their work, providing feedback in that context, you know, that really helps them become stronger and smarter, you know, evaluators of content that they come across within other, you know, interactions with mediums, whether it's a YouTube video they pull up on their computer at home, whether it's a commercial that pops up on television, right? It gives them a skill set for evaluating um, different types of creations that other folks have made, right? In addition to really taking what they're doing in the classroom to this different level. Well, um, there's a question at the end of this, but to, to start with, I, I love the example that you gave of the Mary Poppins uh, trailer because we're so used to consuming media. And in some ways that consumption can be passive. You know, you're looking at it, you're experiencing it, and you're not thinking about like the, the pace of the cuts, of the images and how that's affecting your feelings or the the sound of the music that we're doing. And in doing that, you're dissecting video. Like that's video literacy that you're coming up with, right? So maybe what a good question to follow that is, or what are some other skills or um, um, life skills or just general understandings that you can, you think can be gained from students, both creating and consuming um different types of products. I think the traditional is writing. I think that's common to people, but what are the benefits in terms of skills and understandings that we can gain from doing this? So when it comes to getting kids into that zone of creating content, right? It, it absolutely can help them become stronger evaluators, right? Of the content they consume. And I think that as children begin to kind of curate resources and students of all ages are, are conducting research, are verifying information, 
when they've gone behind the scenes, right, when they've made those cuts for a movie themselves, when they've made decisions with an audience in mind, when they've presented research and included that reference and citations to where they found information, you know, they're going to start to look for that in the type of media that they consume, right? And they may have the vocabulary, right? They might be able to articulate exactly what they need to see in order to determine if something is quality content that they can trust, whether they are reading an article listening to a podcast or watching a video online and giving them those experiences from behind the scenes, I think sets them up for success to not just consume content that's quality, but to be thoughtful, you know, curators of content as they begin to share something that is compelling to them and feel confident that it presents information in a way that is, you know, not just, you know, valid, but also engaging and helps communicate right information clearly. So we've talked a lot in previous um, episodes with previous guests we've had about this, the, the idea of literacy and the definition of literacy. And I think, I think mine might be a little bit more extreme than Sean's. We could be on the same page with this though, in terms of what it means to be literate and then the role of technology and um, Scott McCloud, I remember asking this question and he gave this great response that was along the lines of, you know, being literate means being able to basically express yourself within the dominant like mode of communication of the time. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, right. So Sean and I start this podcast and I, it's pretty evident. There's a, there's like a, this resurgence of podcasting. It, well, I don't know if it'll surpass video. Like, who knows exactly what will happen? What I'm trying to get to here, and here's my question for you, and I'd actually like you to address and respond to, is what is what is your perspective on being literate with regards to technology? And then also, because I hear this all the time, and I'm sure you hear this as well, and I had these thoughts when I was a history teacher of, you know, I, I studied, I went to school, I signed up to be a history teacher, not to teach kids how to use technology. But I mm-hmm. think... Maybe at one point it was reasonable to mildly adopt adapt that adopt that mindset, but I don't know if that's okay anymore. Like the landscape has changed drastically, so that's a lot of stuff to consider. But Monica, your thoughts on what it means to be literate with regards to technology, and then the role or responsibility of the teacher to, you know, inform students of the changing landscape of literacy, and then even instruct them in becoming literate when the teacher themselves might not have the skill set or came from an era that didn't have these tools readily available to them. So I think, you know, when we tackle that kind of big idea of what it means to be literate, you know, what comes to mind for me is this ability to articulate one's thoughts and also to comprehend, right, what someone else is saying. And we talk about the mediums of the time, right? Or the way that that's happening, right? In the past, it looks very different than what it does right now. So for someone to be able to express their understanding of something, to express their thinking on a topic, right? The options for them to do so and the expectations for them to do so in terms of a variety of media, right? Have, have grown, right? Well, in many ways. And the same goes for being able to comprehend, right, information, to be able to understand what someone is saying about a particular topic. And that information that someone is getting also comes across, right, these different mediums. So I do think, and I think a lot about the audio component, probably more so than the the video or visual component, not to say it's not 
one is more important than the other. But I think audio has really been more on my mind and in my conversations with educators recently, you know, to say, what does it look like for someone to express themselves conversationally, right? But then also to get information from a podcast, from a recording. And what does that look like in terms of listening comprehension outside of an ELA classroom? So I do think that, you know, conversations around, whether it's a social studies classroom, a science classroom, or a math classroom, right, or a different discipline, right? What does it look like to introduce information to students, right, in a few different mediums for them to kind of make sense of that particular topic? So I do think that our kind of expectations for what students need to be able to do in terms of interacting with content needs to evolve. I do think that in my conversations that are more ELA focused, it's been interesting to see an increased emphasis on speaking and listening, moving away from a just kind of laser focused on reading and writing. Not to say that we are changing expectations in that realm, but I think more value is being placed in speaking and listening in my conversations with educators. And I do hope that that is something that is embraced more for the positive aspect and the engaging aspect and look at what we can do now. I kind of, kind of feel when it comes to cross-curricular adoption. You know, I, I'm taking this theme from what you're saying that the expansion of the tools that are available are creating um, a diversity in how expression can happen. Can happen, and that diversity both meets different needs. But you know, I think back to Marshall McLuhan's um, "The medium is the message." Like, how do we frame? How do we learn from different medium? Is something that you're mentioning, but also how do we? How does our voice and our tone and our expression change when we're using this different medium? Because they are very different. And I think of it very much like if you're talking at a formal dinner table, you speak one way. If you're sitting at a lunch table with your friends, you speak one way. If you're in a government meeting, you speak in a very formal way. And in like a, a, a courtroom, you speak in a different formal tone. And I think that mediums have tones as well. And that one of the benefits that I'm, I'm gaining from this conversation is this idea that we have to teach students just like there's a, a tone in the hallway and a tone in the PE classroom, um, that there's different tones and expression in, in, in the creations that they create, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that may sound a little overwhelming at times, but that's the nuanced understanding of the communication that we're trying to develop with kids. And I do think that the conversations around the, the type of language used in the settings that you mentioned, right, happen when teachers are having conversations with students about what's appropriate here or what we're looking for or prepping them for certain new experiences they haven't quite had before. But I think the same thing, right, can connect to when a student is using their voice to right, and not tell, right, the way they would as a writer, right, here they can be expressive in ways that might not be part of their kind of natural way of, of talking and sharing. I think it does lend itself to making connections to the things that, right, educators, you know, are traditionally comfortable, right, introducing students to, whether it's as readers, whether it's as persuasive writers, whether it's someone presenting information, right, or making connections to different text types. And I do think there is a lot of room for all of us to grow when it comes to saying, right, what are these new levels of of expectations for students specifically around kind of the audio and visual formats for them to express themselves in a way that truly does right, accomplish some of our show what you know 
goals to make sure a child understands something, but then also to have them make that connection to an audience of varying types. And students are you know, consuming more media or looking at more YouTube videos or saying, who's making this for why? Or I noticed that they did this, or I heard this in that podcast, right? Our kind of library of examples is really growing. And as someone who has made a commitment in the past, I would say six months, well, not quite a 2018 goal, but one I'm carrying into this year to really of make more of a commitment to audiobooks, I've been noticing, right, who's doing something well in terms of their narration, who is talking about something in a way that's really compelling, right? The same way that as a reader, right, I would always be on the lookout for small excerpts to bring to a group of students as examples. And it's interesting to see that shift happen, right, in my own practice, right, as an educator to say, you know, there are some people doing this really, really well. And it's a, a great kind of example to bring to a group of students or a group of educators, right, when having that conversation. Okay. So we've talked about the philosophy of it. We've talked about the implications where it can be helpful. And I, I, I think if, if a person or a teacher is listening and they've been convinced, this is what I need to do. Tell me where they begin. So either what are some of like a, a, a technique that you can start with, or maybe give me two or three tools that a person who's just not on, who hasn't really do, taken the dive in can say, I'm going to try these things out. So there's a few things that I suggest when talking to teachers about bringing in creation into the classroom and really making that plan for what the tech integration component is going to look like. I think it's really important to be mindful of logistical constraints, to understand right what we can accomplish with what we have in the sense of right, what do I have access to on a regular basis, right? So taking all those things into consideration, I think are really important. And I, I hesitate to gloss over them too much because without understanding connectivity, device access, and all those things, right, we just can't quite get things done, right, in different environments. So once we have you know, taken stock of that and understand what we can kind of get done logistically, the next step for me in those conversations comes back to those, what I call my tasks before apps mindset, like gut check questions, which is what is our learning goal, right? What is it that we're trying to get students to know and be able to do? Right. What do we want students to create to show what they know? So what is that kind of product going to have as components, not necessarily what it's going to be, but what's going to be inside of it? And then saying, what tool is going to help us get that job done? Because we're focused on audio and we want to support students who are conversationally proficient in the language and are building their writing proficiency, Right? we might lean towards one end. Because we know that we want to share our products with this audience we might be thinking more on this end, right? So making the decisions, keeping some of those pieces in mind, right? When we look at something from a culminating product, whether it's a multi-day or multi-week type of unit, those are some of the questions that I go along kind of to guide folks with that. I have some checklists um, within my Task Before Apps book that break down right, kind of tool by tool, right? This might be good for you if you want to keep things offline, right? If this is important for you to have access for easy search for curated images, right? This is something that might be useful for you. So those pieces are absolutely part of it when choosing kind of the tool to get the job done. But I always start off with that question of what is your learning a goal? What's your objective? Right? What do you want to see students really understand and then apply to that particular audience who's going to, to view and, and see their work? You know, when 
talking about that kind of creation as the end product or a goal that we have. I'll also kind of work through a, kind of a unit timeline with teachers too, right? Is there a way to leverage digital tools in the beginning of that unit um, to really expose students to something new, to spark their curiosity, right? Or other ways that technology right, might come in uh, to really take something to a different level. You, you mentioned it, and I think you alluded to a little bit about this idea of audience. And I know I'm a, a 100% a broken record with the idea of who, who should the audience be or who can the audience be with student work. I love um, the Austin Cleone's work and his, his message that if your work isn't online today, and this is maybe coming from more of a professional setting, but if your work isn't online today, it doesn't exist. I know that based on the the sharing that you do online and the the publishing and connecting, like if your stuff wasn't online, your pre, you know the work you do wouldn't exist. People wouldn't know of you, wouldn't be able to connect with you and learn from you and learn with you. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of the idea that students, you know, they can and they should be publishing their work with it within a reasonable degree. You know, younger students, lower elementary, even maybe all, all the way up through middle school, like privacy and um, protecting students in, in reasonable ways. But it, increasingly, you know, how, how powerful and meaningful could it be for a high school student to have a meaningful body of work that they're interested in that's shareable online and there's very little technical obstacle to get that done today the way that it used to exist um you think about like sharing files and where is it going to be published and who's going to host it and all these things to some degree don't even exist anymore um and not not so much that i think that everything should be published but i think it's an awareness um that it's possible and there's very little limitation to this being done with all forms of media that exist today. And I wanted to add that, just kind of add that idea into the, you know, th this audience discussion that, you know, you were alluding to before. Um, Sean, I, we're kind of, this is the second half of the first season of the So We've Been Thinking podcast. So I think it would be fitting that we continue the tradition of our asking our end of show questions. And I'll give you the, the rights to do question one today. <laughs> So Monica, what we do is we ask people just a few simple questions to get to know you a little bit and kind of um, we try and throw them from out of nowhere um, just to get a sense of who you are as a person. So our first question is, um, what's your favorite thing about your childhood? Oh, maybe the location. I loved where I grew up and all the people that were surrounding with me. I feel very lucky to have grown up so close to the water. And that's something that is, is still kind of near and dear to my heart now. Okay. I totally agree with you. I feel like people that grow up or have this affinity to the water, they have a really hard time breaking away from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm in agreement with you. So here's my, um, my next one for you would be, um, if you had to make one book recommendation to a friend that was a non-EDU book, what would it be? Ooh. I just finished, which was a recommended book to me, uh, Deep Work, which I found unbelievably thought-provoking. Julie Wilcott, so someone we all know, probably, right, um, recommended it sure. to me. And I loved it because it was something that was kind of applicable in so many circumstances about being distracted, you're using social media in ways that are more strategic than kind of the passive ways that we do. It really changed my thinking about some things that I do in my 
everyday practice, right? Beyond professional life. And so deep work is one I would absolutely recommend. Okay. Um, and then the final question is, um, what is your most deeply held irrational fear? Oh, that's a good one. I'm always tempted to say animal stress is, um, animal stress is people, which is Monica from friends is the other Monica in my life. Um, irrational fear, but Oh, I might just have to stick with that when I wrote a whole essay on it in high school when I was asked the same question and couldn't come up with a clever answer. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, where can people find more of your work? So my blog, classtechtips.com, I blog several times a week with new strategies and new ideas for educators. And at Class Tech Tips is where I've been sharing kind of all of my journeys um, with EdTech on social media, especially Instagram this past year, trying to capture from some of the different spaces where I'm working with teachers and kind of traveling along the way. All right. Thank you so very much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. So We've Been Thinking is sponsored and brought to you by EdTech Teacher and the EdTech Teacher Summer Workshop Series. From Boston to Chicago and San Francisco, the EdTech Teacher team will be leading workshops all summer on topics ranging from creativity with G Suite to design thinking and 3D printing to AR and VR and EDU. There's a workshop for every educator. Learn more at edtechteacher.org forward slash summer. So We've Been Thinking is sponsored and brought to you by EdTech Teacher and the EdTech Teacher Summer Workshop Series. From Boston to Chicago and San Francisco, the EdTech Teacher team will be leading workshops all summer on topics ranging from creativity with G Suite to design thinking and 3D printing to AR and VR and EDU. There's a workshop for every educator. Learn more at edtechteacher.org forward slash summer.